Good morning. How are we doing? All right. Good deal. We have a lot to dive into, and I'm really trying to make it an effort to stay on time. Uh, I was ahead of schedule last week, FYI, and so um, I don't know if that's going to happen today, but we'll see, right? Hey, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be today. We have been in a collection of talks now. Uh, This is part three of a series called Kingdom with the tagline of reviving the revolution. Um, And the whole premises about this is that whenever Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago, Jesus came with the intent of bringing a revolution, a revolution that was different than maybe what the Pharisees or the religious leaders desired or wanted, Um, But he brought a revolution of grace and of love and leveling out the playing fields. But also at the same time, he brought a revolution to destroy sin and call his church, us, to a higher standard. Um, and, And really something that we see throughout the entire scripture is that there's two kingdoms at play in our lives. We have the kingdom of God, often referred to as the kingdom of light. Uh, And then we have the kingdom of Satan, often referred to as the kingdom of darkness. The entire premises of the scripture really just comes from this idea of Emmanuel, which I know some of y'all are immediately thinking about Christmas right now. And I do want to remind you that Christmas is three months away. Yeah, y'all that are excited... I have no comment to that because I am not at all excited. I'm like the leaves started changing colors, and I was like, golly, here we go. Anyways, um, Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this is something that you see all the way from the beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 1. You see that God dwelt, walked, spent time, hung out with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We see this in Genesis chapter 2. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we see a new kingdom end up rising up, uh, and it's the kingdom of darkness. And and what happened was the serpent, who was the wisest of all creatures, came and deceived Eve into eating the fruit. Now, we're going to talk more about that next week, but at that moment, the kingdom of darkness allowed, and then, let me just say, the kingdom of darkness Uh, planted a seed which then allowed Eve to end up sinning against God and allowed sin to enter into a perfect world. And whenever sin entered into the world, everything that was pretty, everything that was uh, was perfect and glorious and and, and just um, the presence of God everywhere was fractured. And all throughout the Old Testament, you see God's intent to dwell with his people, God's intent to be the king of his people, and the people of God continuously revolting against the will of God. Sounds very similar to today, just to be honest with you. But then Jesus shows up on the scene, and Jesus leveled the playing field. Jesus changed the way that people perceive God as a father. Jesus brought this revolution and ultimately brought a kingdom to this earth. Now, as I said two weeks ago, three weeks ago now, oftentimes whenever we view and interpret Scripture, we look at it and we we look at it from either a left view or a right view. And by that, I mean either a liberal view or a conservative view. Uh, We tend to look at life. We tend to look at our daily lives, our values, uh, really through the lens of what uh, where we stand politically whenever it comes to um, our world in America. 
But Jesus, and my challenge for us, is to not look at the world through a left or right lens, but to look at the world through an up or a down lens, meaning up being the kingdom of God and then down being the kingdom of darkness. And so as we dive into today's talk, um, you're going to see in Philippians chapter 3 that the Apostle Paul comes really right out of the gate and he starts swinging. And what I love about Paul is he's blunt. Um, He goes right for the jugular, and um, he just has a way of just, like, getting to the heart of of men and women, which I think that you will end up seeing that today. Uh, If you're taking notes, if you're taking notes, you can title this message one of two things, depending on what type of person you are. You could call it the battle of the heart, or you can call it four ways to have victory over your heart. However you want to title it, that's completely up to you. But I want you to think about this. How often is your heart deceitful and wicked? How often does your heart tell you something that maybe your conscience says, hey, you you shouldn't be doing that? How often does your heart just want to just give up on things? I I think about in my life, oftentimes my heart wants self-gratification. My heart wants to be pleased in the moment. My heart wants, wants, it's like, I, I need this now. Or I think about the temptations that many of us, if not all of us in here, have experienced in our life. And our heart is pulling in one way or in another way, right? Or how about the situations or circumstances that happen to us that then affect our heart? How many of us, don't raise your hand, but how many of us, we have a good day at school and we're great and joyful in our heart. We read scriptures like rejoice in the Lord and we're like, yeah, I can rejoice today. It's been a great day. But others of us, we are succumbed to peer pressure, or we have challenges, or we have a bully that picks up on us. Or in the workplace, we have a boss that's just straight up a jerk, and there's no way that we want to rejoice in the Lord. If anything, our heart wants to cut someone. It's three people are admitting to that, and I'm with you with that. Like, come on. Like, like, and I'm talking figuratively. We would never cut anyone, right? This is... The battle of the heart, and it's something that you and I face daily. It is the battle of light and darkness, of good and evil. It's the battle, the kingdoms that are at war with each other right now as we speak. And so if you would, just jump with me. We're going to walk through Philippians chapter 3. We're not going to read the the whole chapter. I wanted to, but I was just like, all right, I got to stay on time. So we're going to go quick, though. Is that cool? Capiche? Good? Sound good? All right, cool. All right. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Woo! Get excited about God. And then he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe to you. Verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, and look out those for those who mutilate the flesh. Ouch, Paul. What are you saying? For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Right out of the gate, Paul is drawing a parallel between the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. And, and he's drawing this parallel. And, and I, I think for some of us, we kind of read this and we just kind of gloss over it like, oh, okay, watch out for certain things. But really what Paul is saying to your life and to my life and to the reader's life is to watch out for the traps. 
to watch out for the traps that, that, that they're facing in life. And he goes through this list, and, I, and I'm going to break this down for you because I think sometimes, like, watch out for the dogs, like, all right, uh, watch out for the evildoers, that's e easy, but what, what is a mutilator of the flesh? Like, what are we talking about? And, and here's what he's talking about. Whenever Paul is addressing watch out for dogs, he's addressing false prophets in that time. And just like we have them today, they experienced false prophets back then as well. Isaiah 56.10 actually gives kind of the definition of a false prophet and calls them dogs. And, and so what he's saying is he's like, hey, whenever men and women, they come into your town, they come into your community, and they start preaching and they start prophesying to you, you need to watch out with what they say. You actually need to take what they say and run it through the lens of Scripture to make sure it's in alignment with the Word of God. We, we like, I, how many of us, how many of us, we've, we've seen false prophets before? You Maybe you've gone to, like, a revival meeting. Some of us, a few of us have, right? Been to revival meetings. I remember some, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell this story. I grew up in a charismatic church, all right? Um, and we had, we had what was called passing out or getting slain in the Spirit. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Show of hands. Who knows what I'm talking about? So, all right, the ones that don't know what I'm talking about, it's okay. Basically, what would happen is the traveling evangelist would come up, and they would, you know, put their hands on you, and under the power of God, they would gently push until you just did one of those courtesy falls, right? Because he's like, he's pushing on me. So, I, there was this one revivalist preacher, and, and um, they lined me up, and this is, you know, a decade, 15 years ago. They lined me up, and I'm not saying he's a false prophet, but I would challenge it, you know. Um, and, and he's going, and he's like, come on fire, fire, and he gets to me, fire, and I'm like, my feet are planted, brother, I ain't moving, you go ahead, he's like, fire, I'm just like, oh, I'm about to fire you, you know, like, I'm getting all, getting all with it, and fire, third time happens, and then he moves on, and then the elder of the church comes up to me, and is like, you must not have the Holy Spirit, and I'm like, brother, whoo, I got a little fired up, Anyways, walked out, did not go back, all right? Um, but like, and, and listen, I'm not trying to make fun of people, but I totally am. I can make fun of charismatics because I grew up charismatic, and I think I'm a little charismatic myself, all right? So if you're not charismatic, it's all good in the hood, right? Um, anyways, but what I'm getting at is these false prophets will come in, and they will say things to tickle the ears and to get likes and to get uh, accolades from people and everyone supporting them and saying, yeah, we're going to do it, but they're giving us false promises and false hope that does not align with the word of God. So Paul says, watch out for the dogs. The second thing he says is, watch out for evildoers. Now an evildoer is someone who is adamantly opposing the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In which I would say, look at our politicians. I'm talking both right and left. Politicians who are adamantly opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Something that I thought was interesting, and I didn't want to make fun of America, but I wanted to make fun of our neighbors, and not even really make fun, because it isn't even, it isn't even a fun thing that I'm about to tell you. But I just want to give you an example of people who are evildoers, according to Paul. People who are opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ. In our neighboring country, Canada, A, A, y'all got that, uh, which I've never been to Canada, and maybe one day I'll end up going but in spring of 2021, there was a report that came out, and you can go and look all of this up, and uh, there was a report that came out where they had found, according to um, the indigenous tribe 
and according to some uh, excavators, they had found what they believed was unmarked graves near one of the Catholic uh, schools back in, back in uh, really from like the 1890s through the 1960s. And so they, they found through uh, this radar that penetrated the ground, they found these anomalies in the ground, and they said, well, this certainly has to be the unmarked graves. And some reports say that they found around 200, others say around 700. I don't know the exact number. really depends on who you read. But um, the story broke that they found these unmarked graves. For about two months, the story broke just in Canada. And then the New York Times, I believe it was in May of 2021, grabbed a hold of the story, which was in the height of the racial tension here in America. And they grabbed a hold of the story, and they said, mass graves found at former churches. And what people assume just by the changing of that language is that the Christian church or the Catholic church was taking all of these indigenous people and, and they were killing them if they were not really falling in a line with Christianity. Now, I will admit there were some horrific things that happened to the indigenous tribes in America and in North America and Canada. And I, I, had, I am completely like want to be clear about that. But that changing of the word mass grave reminded people of the Holocaust where they found these mass graves. And then all of these news stations started reporting around the world about there being these mass graves of children that died at the hands of Christians in Canada. And so what happened is this sparked this outrage in Canada. And 68 Christian churches were burned to the ground. Over 83 churches were vandalized. Statues throughout the country were ripped down. There was graffiti all over the streets of Christ, or all over school buildings of Christian education. And um, Christian discrimination and violence towards Christians rose 216% in Canada. And so the prime minister, he ended up tweeting out, and they got together with their version of Congress, Parliament, and, and they said, we're going to give $40 million towards the excavation of all of these sites and finding the children and having them properly returned. And on top of that, we're going to give $400 million to the indigenous people. And then the Pope ended up issuing a public apology on behalf of the Catholic Church. And you know what happened? They started the excavation. They started the excavation, and after 14 different sites were dug into, do you know how many human remains they found? Zero. Zero. Not DNA evidence, not a jawbone, absolutely nothing that they found. And now people in Canada are saying this is the biggest hoax in Canadian history. Here's my point with this. Um, people ran with the story that really had no evidence with it. The media grabbed a hold of it. People started persecuting Christianity, and an agenda ended up coming out towards the Christian church. These are examples of evildoers. Now, this is not at all any fault of the indigenous tribes. I want to make that very clear. They kind of stayed out of it. And actually, one of the chiefs ended up saying it pains him that there was so much violence done whenever there was such little evidence of what had taken place. Those are evil doers. And, and I just need to say this publicly. Guys, this is in Canada. If you don't think it's coming for America, you need to wake up. 
It's going to happen. We're going to experience persecution. Michael, this is very encouraging. I know. He continues on, and then he says, watch out for those who mutilate their flesh. Now, what he's talking about in this context right here is he's talking about people who started following Jesus, but they felt like following Jesus was not um, enough, and so they started to ascribe to the Mosaic laws, and the men would start to circumcise themselves as grown adults. Ouch. And, and so, but I think we can look at it in our life, and hear me out, if you call yourself a Christian, you've probably found yourself in this spot before. You can look at it in your life that when you sin, when you stumble, whenever you mess up, the cross of Jesus is not enough for you. So you bring chastisement upon yourself to try to get something from God or to be more holy. Let me, let me kind of just give you a prime example. Say you ended up doing something really stupid, right? And it's just like, well, man, I guess I need to fast more. And so I'm going to fast all food for the next seven days because I'm not holy enough. You know what happens is you're taking a spiritual principle of fasting and you're fasting in reaction to your sin instead of fasting to be able to draw closer to Jesus. And there is a huge, huge difference. Because whenever you're fasting in light of your sin, you're basically saying the cross of Jesus wasn't enough. And so you got to pick up your sin and carry it with you. We have to watch out for the traps that are in front of us because the enemy is looking to trip you up and he's looking to trap you. We have to watch out for the traps and guys, we have to stay on our path towards Jesus. He continues, and let me just want to jump real quick down to verse 18 because I think this is just a gnarly statement that the Apostle Paul says. He says, For many of whom I often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies to the cross. I want want that to be set in for just a minute because either you are a follower, devoted disciple of Jesus, or you're an enemy to the cross. Again, it's this divide of the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. I love verse 19. Their end is their destruction, Their their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is their shame, and their mindset on earthly things. It kind of reminds me of eat, drink, be merry, and die. Meaning if all we're doing is trying to gratify our flesh, satisfy what's happening in here, we're missing the point. If we're just trying to satisfy where our heart is, we're missing the point. But he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, it's a divide. Evildoers, mutilators of the flesh, false prophets, your God is your belly, your glory is your shame. But as for us, I'm a citizen of the King. I'm a citizen of heaven, the Most High God. That is my identity being found in Christ. Now jump with me real quick back to verses 4 through 7, and I'm going to try to pick up the pace some. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, according to Jewish tradition. Of the people of Israel and of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrews of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisees, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
And so what he's doing right here is he's going down this list right here, and he's saying, hey, you guys think you have all of this? Let me, let me tell you about my resume for a minute. I, I am a Jew. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm so Hebrew, I'm a Pharisee. As to the law, you can put the law up against me. I am blameless. I got it all together. And I'm a Roman citizen. So, like, what, what are you guys doing? You, you can't touch the things that I've done in my life. You can't touch what I've done on the outside unless Jesus gets involved, which is where he says in verse 7, but whatever I had, whatever gain I had, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ. See, what happened to Paul and what needs to happen to many of us is we need to allow ourselves to be humbled. We need to humble ourselves. Because whenever we humble ourselves, it creates an opportunity for there to be true and genuine spiritual growth in our lives. Now, I don't know how many of us know the story of Paul, so I'm going to give you a, a one-minute um, backstory of the Apostle Paul. But Paul, his original name was Saul, and Saul was known as a modern-day terrorist to the church. He um, was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a, he was a part of uh, the, the Jewish Pharisees. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He practiced all of the Levitical law, the Mosaic law. I mean, he was all after all of that. Like, he had it all together, right? Um, and then one day, he went to some of the leaders, and he said, hey, I need you to commission me to go to Damascus so that I can persecute, jail, and murder some of the Christians in Damascus so that we can stop them uh, from really growing. And so the Pharisees, they said, boom, here's your stamp. You've got your letter. And so Saul and a few men, they got on this horse and they started on their journey to Damascus. And as they're galloping, I'm assuming they're galloping, maybe they're walking, I don't know, maybe they're on donkeys or horses, you know, they're on their horse. And I just think of Monty Python and the search for the Holy Grail, right? I'm just, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Some of y'all are like, what's, what's a Monty Python, you know? Is that a snake? Anyways, and so they're, they're walking to Damascus, and in the middle of them walking, boom, this bright light from heaven shines down, blinds Saul. He falls off of his horse, and then he hears this voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In which he responds, Lord, Lord, who are you? And God responds, it is me, Jesus, who is the Christ. And so he then instructs Saul to, to get up in his blind self to go to Damascus. He's going to end up meeting a guy there, stay there three days, and then wait for further instructions. And Saul radically gives his life over to Jesus Christ. He has this radical moment, gives his life over to Christ, becomes what is now called the apostle to the Gentiles, and he starts the largest and the greatest church planting movement that the, the world has ever seen. And so this is Saul who becomes Paul, who was there at the, the murder of Stephen, the first person murdered for being a follower of Jesus Christ, who then becomes passionate and on fire because he allowed himself to be humbled, because he allowed Jesus to speak into his heart. He allowed Jesus to really talk about the brokenness and the things that he was doing and how it was hurting Jesus. And so Paul's sitting here saying, he's like, I had all the stuff on the outside, but on the inside, I was empty. On the inside, I was broken. On the inside, I had nothing. 
Some of us in this room today, we have a lot of stuff on the outside. We've got the degrees, we've got the job, we've got the bankrolls, we've got the paychecks. We got it all together, but on the inside, how's your heart? How's your heart? How are you really doing in there? How often do you go to bed at night and you're just empty and broken and lonely on side? He continues on in verse 8 through 11, and he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I, now catch this, that I may know him and that I may know the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. See, what's happening with Paul is he's talking to the Philippians and he's saying, listen, I had all this stuff and it was garbage. The proper word that he used was scubalone. It was scubalone compared to knowing Christ. And not only do I get to know Christ, but I have access to Christ. I get to experience the power of the resurrection. I want to talk for just a, a moment on this. How many of us walk around knowing that we have resurrection power living inside of us? How many of us walk around knowing that that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is dwelling inside of me. See, I think many of us, we go about our lives saying, oh, I'm a Christian and that's enough, when really we need to be seeking kingdom purpose in our life. We need to seek kingdom purpose in our life. And, and when we go to school, students, and, and when we um, hang out with each other, and whenever we're at the gym or whenever we're uh, coming and, and having these conversations with people, there is a kingdom purpose in everything that we do. I need a volunteer for just a minute. Any volunteers in the house? Wow. <laughs> I, I just want to call on uh, Ellie Waltersdorf. If she can come up here just for a second. Come on, real, real, real quick. I'm, you don't even have to speak, I promise. You don't have to say a word at all. Y'all give it up for Ellie Waltersdorf. Yeah, come on around. I promise you, I will make sure that you don't have to say anything. You just got to do one thing for me. Can you do one thing? She can do it. All right. You spoke. You spoke. Like, Okay. All right. I have a blank check right here. Some of y'all have seen this, so don't shout out anything. I have a blank check, all right? Uh, your mother, who happens to be the business administrator of this church, has authorized this check to be written up to $100. $100. See, I bet some of y'all are like, man, maybe I should have volunteered. <laughs> However, I want to remind you that this is the church's money, and so be mindful of whatever it is that you write. But I want you to write a number in here in this check. Yes, ma'am. 
Okay. Now, can you write your name right there? Now, I told her I would not talk, so you're all probably wondering, what, what did she write? Don't worry, I'll tell you. Okay, awesome. So Ellie, Eliana Waltersdorf just wrote a check for 85 U.S. dollars. But she was authorized to write the check for up to $100. See, something I believe that some of us need to recognize and understand as followers of Jesus Christ is we don't have 85% of the kingdom of God inside of us. We have 100% of the kingdom of God inside of us. But many of us are only going after 85% or 20% or 10% or just enough. Meanwhile, all of the riches of God, 100%, is available to us. All of the glory, all of the resurrection power is available to us. Now, Ellie, this is for you. I'm serious. See, you should have wrote it for $100. Should have wrote it for $100, right? Because she had authority granted to her to write it for $100. So take that. Your mom can deposit it for you. Just make sure to tithe off of it, all right? Y'all give it up for her. But how often do we have complete access to the resurrection power in life that is available to us, but we're just taking a percentage that's there? How often is that the case for you? How often is that the case for me? He continues on. And he says this, and man, verse 12 just wrecked me. He says this in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Meaning, I, I'm not perfect. My, my body's spirit, my body's flesh, it, like it's... Like, I know my spirit's been renewed, my spirit's been made new, but my flesh, I still live in a broken world. Let, let me put it this way. In heaven, I'm not going to wake up from sleeping eight hours with a backache. But in this world, at 37 years old, guess what I'm starting to get? Backaches. I'm getting old, folks. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own Catch this, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I love that right there. Meaning, I haven't obtained this, but Christ has already made me his own. Which reminds me of Romans 6, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning, we don't have to have it all together. We don't have to have it perfect. We don't have to have um, all of the stuff worked out in our life. We just simply need to humble ourselves before the Lord and seek a kingdom purpose, which is the will of God for your life, and allow Jesus to be center because he's already made you his own. Now, this past week, my son, who I absolutely love, um, has been going through some issues, right? School started, our days start early, and they end at like 9, 10 o'clock at night. It's, it's, um, we're having fun, but it's also crazy. And on Monday, I think it was Monday, he just started freaking out, like just dad and, you know, yelling at me and, and angry. And, and of course, me, I'm like, I want to pipe up and be like, Judah, but I'm really trying, like, I'm not going to raise my voice to him anymore. I'm just going to talk to him. And so I said, hey, Judah, I want you to be quiet. Ah, don't tell me what to be, do. I'll, I'll talk. And I was like, just trust me. Be quiet and go get in the truck. He's like, fine. 
right? Some of y'all parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And we got in the truck, and I had to go pick up dog food or something like that from Tractor Supply, so I went in there. I should have made him carry the 50-pound bag of dog food, but I didn't want to do that because um, he only weighs 50 pounds. And, uh, but then he's like, where are we going? I was like, you'll see, son, you'll see. And we went to my place and company, which is just this little dive bar, restaurant, burger place that has decent food. It's okay food. Honestly, some of their food is trash. I'm just going to be honest with you. But their burgers, their kids' meals are six bucks. I was like, I can afford that right now. So, so we sit there, and he orders a hamburger and a lemonade, which the lemonade was half the cost of the burger. And we start talking. I just start saying, hey, bud, let me tell you about how it was whenever I grew up. Grew up. I started talking about my childhood and just sharing some stuff with him, trying to have a more of an adult conversation with him. And then towards the end of the conversation, I look at him and I said, Judah, I want you to know that there is absolutely nothing that you will do that's ever going to stop me from loving you. Even when you don't feel like I love you, even when you feel like I'm angry at you, even when you feel like I'm, I'm not there, I am there and I love you and I care for you. You may not like my answer sometimes, but that doesn't change the fact that you're my son. And I'm the only person in this world that, it, that is your father. So we're sitting there having that dialogue, and he apologizes to me. And we get done and go back to the house, and he goes to bed. And, but it made me think of, if I have that much affection and love for my son, who is imperfect, and I'm imperfect, how much more does Jesus have for you and I? See, a lot of us, we feel like we've lost it because we stumble and we sin, but I'm here to tell you, Jesus has you if you've given your life over to him. Jesus loves you. He cares for you. He wants what's best for you. And sometimes what's best for you may not be what you want, but it's what the kingdom of God wants. And that's where we have the battle that dwells inside of our hearts. He continues on. He says this in verses 13 and 14. He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus meaning that the point of everything that we do as a church, the point of everything that we do as individuals, the point of everything we do as businessmen, as students, as family members is simply this, to keep our eyes on Jesus and let him be the perfecter of our faith. Let him be the one who cleanses us and washes us clean. So listen, many of us, you walked in here today and you're battling things in your heart. You want the four things. Number one is you got to watch out for the traps that the enemy's placing in front of you because the enemy is seeking to destroy you. Number two, we have to make sure that we remain humble and we humble ourselves. And number three, we've got to be able to seek kingdom purpose in our life. And all of that has to be rooted and grounded in point number four, which is to keep our eyes upon Jesus. And something you'll see is that the more you keep on Jesus, the less junk and sin you have to worry about. 
See, what's happened in the church and what's happened with Christians is the church has taught a false doctrine. And the false doctrine is this, that once you get saved, all the struggle goes away and it's going to be amazing with a bag of potato chips. But that's false doctrine. That's a lie. And I'm going to sit up here and say, once you get saved, that's where the real battle begins. That's where the enemy's like, okay, he's now marked by the blood of Jesus. We've got to go after that individual. We have to go after him. We have to go after her. We're going to start messing with areas in their life. We're going to, we're going to bring temptation that they haven't dealt with in 15 years back up to, to cause him to trip up. We're going, to, we're going to do, you know what it is? It's because Satan has a bullseye on your back and he's going after you. Some of you wonder why you've been struggling so much. Why, Like, God, I feel like I'm in this battle. I feel like I'm fighting. I feel like, man, it's because Satan's after you. That must mean you are marked and you've got the anointing of the Holy Ghost on your life and God wants to do something powerful with your life. We got to keep our eyes on Jesus. Here's the problem, and I'm just being very blunt, and I'm a pastor, and so I'm going to talk about this, and I don't care if you have a problem with it. You can email Jen. She'll delete your email. She won't delete your email, I promise you. But, but here's, here's my thing. We've been preaching behavior modification for too long in the church. We've been preaching that you got to get X, Y, and Z in order to be able to get A, B, C. We've been, we've been preaching how to prioritize certain things in our life Instead of preaching the kingdom of God, preaching the grace of Jesus, preaching that we are adopted as sons and daughters of God and allowing us to be able to fixate our eyes upon Jesus. There is a difference between behavior modification and pressing into Jesus. Behavior modification is you trying to do it and maybe you'll sprinkle a little bit of Jesus in there somewhere. But pressing into Jesus is saying, I'm not going to worry about this other stuff. I'm going to get my eyes focused on Jesus, and I'm going to watch that the, the junk of this world will slowly start to dim away. This is why if you, if you catch yourself and you're, found, you're sinning a whole lot, you're doing a bunch of stupid stuff, your language is horrible, man, what are you thinking about? What are you focusing on? I want to read to you guys this story as I close out. It says, born in 1864, Helen Limmel moved to the United States around the age of 12. From a young age, her musical ability was noticed by all those around her. In 1907, she moved to Germany for four years and underwent intense musical training. It was here that she would meet her husband. Together, they returned to the United States in 1911. While in America, she served faithfully in the Lord's work. She dedicated herself to writing, arranging, and teaching songs and hymns of the faith. A few years after her marriage, a tragic illness caused her to lose her vision. Her husband, refusing to attend to a blind wife, left her. This time of hurt and loss weighed heavily upon Helen. Then in 18, I'm sorry, 1918, Helen was introduced to a pamphlet writings by Anglican missionary Lias Trotter. Trotter was a well-known artist who had given up uh, a rising and lucrative career to serve the Lord on the mission field. Her words stirred the heart of Helen 
She writes, suddenly, as if commanded to stop and listen, I stood still. And singing in my soul and spirit was the chorus with not one conscious moment of putting word to word or making a rhyme or note to note in making a melody. The verses were written the same week. The words that captivated Helen were these. How do we bring things to a focus in a world full of optics? Not by looking at the things to be dropped, but by looking at the one point that is to be brought out. Turn, your for, turn full your soul's vision to Jesus and look, look at him. And a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from him. And the divine uh, attire by which saints are made will lay hold of you, for he is worthy to have all there is to be had in the hearts. And I love this. He is worthy to be all there is to be had in the hearts that he died to win. And in her blind state, she penned these lyrics. Oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at a savior and life more abundant and free. Though death into life everlasting, he passed and we follow him there. Over us sin no more hath dominion, for more than conquerors we are. His word shall be, not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go out to a world, or go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And all the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Helen kept her eyes on the Lord Jesus and continued to serve him faithfully. And she would lead a women's choir groups for many at the Billy Sunday Outreaches, teach music at Moody Bible Institute, and pen over 400 hymns. Her life is a stirring challenge to us all. Hence, it may be said that although blind, her spiritual sight has challenged those of us who can see to keep our eyes on Jesus. I want to invite you to stand with me. And I want us to reflect on this moment right here. And then I'll come up and give some further instruction.
response that was penned by someone listening to her I felt would be the best altar call that we could give and she says are you weary tired hurting confused or frustrated my friends turn your eyes upon the dear Savior today and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory in grace. Friday morning, I've been getting up around 4.45 every day for about a month now, minus Saturdays and Sundays. And Friday, I go to the gym and went to the holy place of Chick-fil-A. And afterwards, I was driving home. And for those that were out Friday before 9 a.m., you know what I'm talking about. The fog was so incredibly dense. I was texting Christy, and I was saying, drivers are horrible up here. They don't know how to drive, and I mean, I'm getting cut off, and people on the interstate going like 50 miles per hour, and of course, my flesh and my heart is like, I need to get home, and I just got really frustrated, and then I turned onto our street, or the, the main road right before our house, and about a mile from my house, the sun pierced through the dense fog. And by the time I got home, there was no fog anymore. I believe that God wants to do that in our lives today. I believe God wants to do that in our hearts today. So I'm going to invite our prayer team to come up here. And as they come up here, and as we transition into a time of reflection and worship, I want to invite you that if you need prayer for anything, to come up here and let us join you in praying with you. Maybe for some of us, there's a sin that keeps tripping us up. Maybe for others, it's just we've lost focus and we've been trying to do it all on our own. Maybe for some of us, we've never truly experienced and embraced the grace of Jesus that he wants to give. But my prayer for you and my prayer for me this morning is that we would turn our eyes upon Jesus and his glorious grace. We would fixate our soul on, our, on him and his kingdom. And we would watch the worries of this world grow dim. Father, God, I pray for every individual in this room. And Lord, I just ask that right now you would speak to our hearts, God. That we would turn our hearts, we would turn our eyes and fix them upon you, God. We would seek a kingdom purpose, God, that we would remain humble. Father, that your kingdom, your resurrection power would come alive in our hearts today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. 
As we sing, I want to invite you forward for prayer. Don't be shy. Be bold. And let us join hands with you and see what God can do in this moment. For the rest of us, I want to challenge us to lean in, turn our eyes upon Jesus.